Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. At the end of last year, Charlotte, John and I went on a road trip. We piled into our gigantic pickup truck, fastened our seatbelts and switched on the engine. But it didn't sound like a typical road trip. It's so quiet. The loudest thing about turning on the car is that your seat moved forward. Rather than the familiar hum and rev of an internal combustion engine, an electric vehicle, even the kind of pickup truck we were driving, is eerily quiet. It's like being in a ferry, or on a ferry, like on the bridge of a large boat. Or in a second-story apartment that happens to move. We drove across the Midwest on a journey to find out how electric vehicles can help America meet its environmental and industrial goals in 2023. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what do electric vehicles tell us about the future of American industry? Twenty twenty three ought to be a big year in America's transition towards EVs. The federal government has set aside billions to incentivize consumers and manufacturers to hitch a ride, and is ramping up the nation's charging infrastructure. America's roads are starting to be filled not just with sleek Teslas, but with pickup trucks whose classic exteriors hide cutting-edge battery-powered technology underneath. Electric vehicles could help marry two big but possibly contradictory goals: to reindustrialize and to decarbonize at the same time. So in December, John and Charlotte and I took a road trip through the Midwest, and we were going to put this episode out last week, but then the Kevin McCarthy speaker thing was just so dominating the news that we switched horses or switched vehicles. But an upside of that delay was that John Fasman is now sitting opposite me in London. Fasman, how are you doing? I'm good. It's good to be here. Have you recovered from our dinner earlier this week? I worried a little bit after you went home. I did recover from our dinner. I am in, I am in fighting form. I just want to clarify here. Okay, so I received a picture of John Fasman eating what seemed to be a pickup-sized plate of ears. <laughs> but we don't know what animal the ears came from. No one ever told me. Did you ever figure that out? Uh, no, it was pig's ears and tripe, and the plate finished me. I did not finish the plate. Well, I don't think there's any way to get from pig's ears and tripe to electric vehicles, so I'm just going to leave that hanging here. In the first two years of the Biden administration, Congress passed some really big spending bills. The CHIPS Act, which relates to semiconductors, the Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest of the lot. And behind all of these is an economic philosophy, an industrial policy, and a really big bet that the 
administration is making, that America can decarbonize and reindustrialize and reshore, all the while benefiting left behind bits of America and blue collar workers and not antagonize its allies in the rest of the world along the way. We thought one way of getting at this phenomenon and exploring some of the tensions between those goals would be to do a road trip through the Midwest, America's historical industrial heartland, in the new Ford F-150 Lightning. That's the electric pickup truck from Ford. And along the way, we talked to a bunch of people about reindustrialization and going green in America. That's right. We drove the Lightning, which is the electric version of what Ford says is the best-selling single vehicle in America. It seemed to us to symbolize the scale of car makers' bets. It's not a status symbol like a Tesla. It's not a little Nissan Leaf or Chevy Bolt. It is an easily recognizable car that just happens to be electric. And for the first stop on our trip, Charlotte and I visited the factory where the Lightning is made. We are at the River Rouge factory complex, which is famous in American history. It opened in 1928. At the time, it was the biggest industrial complex in America. From the front of the truck, you can see the factory where the Ford F-150 is made, the most popular car in America. But just a little bit south is where we're going to go today. It's where they're building the electric F-150. Let's go. That's it. We have approximately 750 employees now since we've launched our third crew. Lisa Curry is the operations manager at the factory. She was our tour guide. Um, I've been here on the launch um, since we launched the building. I've got 28 years here with Ford Motor Company. The facility was vast. Car parts rolled from station to station while the workers stayed still. It was also remarkably quiet and clean. It felt more post-industrial than industrial, almost clinical with no sparks or banging or loud noises, just low voices and the occasional beep of an autonomous robot taking things from one station to the next. So this is how the chassis is built up. This is actually towards the end of the chassis line. The Lightning looks a lot like its gas-powered older sibling. It sits high off the road with that characteristic squared-off grille and deep cab. The biggest difference is mechanical. Um, this is where it varies from the uh, ICE unit, the internal combustion unit. This is where you have a lot of the electricals go on, the battery goes in, and you'll see further down where we load the battery. We were looking at the heart of the car, and it wasn't a combustion engine. It was a chassis with a lot of electrical equipment and a battery. A little ways down the line, the rest of the truck, the distinctive visual part, will go on top of it. And then after some adjustments and testing and final details... It'll roll off the line. Whoever buys the truck will pop the hood, and instead of finding an oil pan and gasket and spark plugs and timing chain and all the rest of that stuff, she'll find a frunk, a trunk but in the front. It's where we put our luggage. The battery and motor and pretty much everything else that makes the car go is underneath. This one is all done but the tires, right? For the most part, everything's done but the tires. Uh, Right here is where we talked about the shields go on, and then it rolls off the line for testing and final inspections. And you'll see the final inspections uh, that go on a little bit further down. 
The F-150 is popular because it's a workhorse. It's reliable with powerful towing capacity. The question is whether an electric version has the same power and reliability. Motor Trend, a popular American car magazine, put it to the test and found that towing something heavy, as pickup trucks often do, cuts its range by up to two-thirds. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm Charlotte I'm Howard. Paul. Nice to meet you. What's your full name? Paul Roberts. And how long have you worked at Ford? 21 years. Charlotte and I talked to some of the people building the Lightning. Paul Roberts used to work on the Ford F-150, the gas-powered version, right next door. And do you have a, an electric vehicle yourself? Do you find that people in the area are getting more excited about EVs or are still mainly sticking to their combustion engines within the broader Detroit area? I hear more about EVs, that people want them. I wasn't sold on it, but when I came over here and started building it, I was sold and now regret not reserving one. <laughs> yes, I love them. Suzanne McDermott has worked for Ford for 23 years. Most of her family works for Ford in one way or another. We asked her about whether people in the area think that EV production could reinvigorate manufacturing in Detroit. Um, I think people are kind of on the fence. Um, I think we kind of have to prove that this is a good thing. I wonder if there's fear about false hope. Does that come up? People feel like they've been disappointed in the past? No, uh, people are excited about the electric, going electric. Uh, people are a little concerned with charging and stuff like that. I think that's a little bit of people's fears, but I think people overall are excited for the product. Just how widespread and enduring that excitement is will become apparent in the coming months and years. So Charlotte, EV is interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, they're fun. They've got wonderful acceleration. They're really quiet and smooth. And, you know, the Internet loves new electric cars. But they're interesting from a public policy point of view, because if America is going to decarbonize, essentially, it has to electrify everything. And one of the first things in that process to be electrified will be electric cars. So how the adoption of electric vehicles goes will have some, you know, pretty outsized say on how the whole getting to America's climate goals thing goes. Yeah, that's right. The point of us borrowing the lightning was not to review it. We thought about towing you, but then realized it would be like trying to tow a stalk of asparagus and would tell us nothing. But the reason why EVs are interesting is one, for environmental reasons. So transport accounts for the largest share of America's total emissions, more than a quarter. And America really lags in EVs in particular. So if you look at other markets like China or Europe, Americans have fewer EV models to choose from. It's Tesla's market share in America is very high. There's no other market where a particular car maker has the dominance that Tesla has in the US, and that's because there's just more models on offer in China and Europe. Um, there are also many fewer charging points in America than there are in Europe or in China. In Europe, EV sales in 2021 were roughly three times the number in America. And so America really lags behind in EVs, and the question is whether they can catch up in EV penetration. But then the other reason why electric cars are really interesting is because they're a good window into the broader industrial policy that Biden is trying to pursue. So it's not just through the Inflation Reduction Act. As you mentioned, there's the CHIPS Act, which focuses on semiconductors, as well as investment in infrastructure through the infrastructure law. But EVs serve as a window both into the extreme ambition of Biden's industrial policy and ways in which it might run into trouble. 
And the scale of, as Charlotte pointed out, this very sort of deregist direction that the Biden administration is going is evident not just in the incentives that they've given to EVs in the Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, but also in the amount of money that's there to build out a charging network. And that seems to me an under-discussed issue of electrifying everything. The demand for EVs is there. They sell well. I mean, there's a big backlog for the Lightning. My family and I tried to buy a different electric vehicle, and there was an 18-month wait list. So the demand is there for that. But what we found when we were driving around is that the charging infrastructure really lags behind. We spent a very freezing night sort of driving from station to station in central Michigan looking for a working charger. We ended up downloading multiple charging apps on our phone. The charging infrastructure isn't there. And if you roll out the vehicles without that infrastructure, I think you'll find consumer backlash. Now, it's true that most driving is done within a very close range of home. And most of the time, this won't be an issue. But of course, people don't remember what works. They remember what doesn't work. Yes, this isn't the ideal vehicle for doing a road trip in in many ways. Most people who buy these things will be able to charge them at home and it'll work pretty well. We did end up, as a result of a charging snafu, having a freezing picnic in the parking lot of a big supermarket, which was the only place where we were able to charge. So this was mid-December. So as you can imagine, it was was pretty chilly, but it was fun too. Um, So I think charging infrastructure is a pretty good example of different ways in which the federal government can intervene in the private market. So there are ways that the Biden administration is trying to incentivize domestic manufacturing. That's one role for the government. Then another role is setting standards. So part of the problem that we had with charging infrastructure is that you can't charge a Ford at a Tesla charging point. And Tesla has built up this big network of charging stations. So that does no good for us, right? We have to drive around looking for something else. And the Biden administration does now actually have the authority to start setting those standards. So it will be easier to have infrastructure that is compatible across different vehicles. But it's quite tricky to roll out and get agreement between actors within the private sector, as you can imagine, because Tesla is not particularly keen to give up that advantage. So that's one example of the ways in which the government might actually be helpful. But it's a little tricky in practice. Then the other question is how the government's plans intersect with those that are already underway in the private sector. So the scale of investment in EVs within America is already really dramatic. In the 11 months through November, there were announcements of $33 billion in new car factories. That's on top of $37 billion announced in all of 2021. And for reference, back in 2017, that figure was $9 billion. So we're talking about an enormous surge in car manufacturing investment in the United States, the likes of which we have not seen for a very, very long time. And you hear Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and others talking about a battery belt, the idea that along the I-75 corridor, this enormous highway that runs from Michigan down through Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, that you see this big surge in investment in all different kinds of factories related to the EV supply chain. And so you pile onto this the number of new policies within the Inflation Reduction Act that try to ensure an even greater share of investment comes within America's borders. And there are some tensions between that effort, uh, the effort to promote domestic manufacturing of EVs, and the goal to accelerate EV penetration, the share of Americans buying EVs, as quickly as possible. And those two might seem that they're perfectly aligned, but actually they're not entirely. 
Well, we'll hear more about the way that the state is intervening in American manufacturing in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, you really should take out an Economist subscription if you don't have one already. This episode is kicking off a whole series we're going to be running in The Economist on reindustrialization, which will begin in a couple of weeks with a long piece written by Charlotte. Charlotte, you mentioned in passing Janet Yellen there. You've just interviewed her, I know, for that series. It's going to be a really interesting series, but you will need a subscription if you want to read it. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. So, Charlotte, after you and Fasman went to the Ford factory tour, leaving me in the motel outside Detroit while I did some Zoom calls, we all drove east to Cleveland, Ohio, to talk to some people there about how, if things go well, the federal money from the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act and the Infrastructure Bill could provide a boost to a region that historically was a heartland of American manufacturing, but then was very hard hit by deindustrialization from the 1970s onwards. Yes. So the Inflation Reduction Act included provisions for the federal government to bolster American manufacturing of electric cars. But of course, there are organizations and government programs that have existed for decades to try to support manufacturing. And so one question we wanted to answer is how the current surge in federal money and federal policies related to manufacturing intersect with what's already happening on the ground. The Manufacturing Extension Partnership has its roots in the Reagan era. And for the next stop on our road trip, we visited one of its outposts in Cleveland, Ohio. So this is my daughter, Eleanor. Hello. Uh, and, and she'll demonstrate some of the things that we go through. So Ethan Karp is president and CEO of Magnet, a nonprofit that uses public and private money to support manufacturing in Northeast Ohio. He's showing us around Magnet's brand new facility with his daughter. I'm Eleanor, and I'm nine years old. For companies deciding where to invest, a top concern is whether they'll have the right people to staff their factories. Eleanor might have a manufacturing job down the road. For now, she and her dad are showing us different machines that Magnet uses to encourage people to work in manufacturing today. One interactive exhibit helps people choose among different careers. Eleanor gave it a try. Code a video game, win at chess, fix up an old car, design and make your own clothes, paint a mural in your neighborhood, or build your own house. Okay, what are you going to choose? Design and make your own clothes. There's five more prompts here. This is, what's your favorite subject in school? Uh, design and tech. A few more questions later, the machine was ready to chart Eleanor's manufacturing future. So it's then going to put the ball through a fun little track, and it asks us, it says, oh, production technician, that seems like a good starting job. This part of the Midwest has seen a decades-long decline in manufacturing jobs. Magnet helps manufacturers adapt to new opportunities, be it by bolstering the local workforce, helping companies redesign their factories, or make new products. Here's CEO Ethan Karp again. Where we are today is a brand new facility that helps us at Magnet do our work, which is one part, go into companies and actually help them design their next product, streamline their efficiencies, adopt new technologies, all this industry 4.0, think about new markets they should be in, like EVs. And on the other hand, we help people get into manufacturing so they can see it's modern, not dark, dirty, dangerous. Organizations like Magnet have been at this for a long time. But as they refine their strategies, the broader landscape now has changed. 
During Joe Biden's presidency, Congress has passed huge bills to boost American manufacturing, particularly of semiconductors and green technologies. Back in October, Magnet played host to no less than Janet Yellen, America's Treasury Secretary. Thanks to Ethan and his team for hosting me here today. Thank Secretary you Yellen spoke of the flaws of past economic strategies. The traditional approach to supply-side economics focuses on generating economic growth through deregulation and tax cuts that disproportionately benefit the wealthiest Americans and large corporations. But economic evidence indicates that this strategy has failed to achieve its promised gains. And in many cases, it has also exacerbated income and wealth inequality. Instead, Yellen says, the Biden administration is taking a different approach. In contrast, our modern supply-side agenda recognizes that investing in underserved communities is not just good for the community itself, it's actually good for the whole economy. This has meant big investments in research centers and infrastructure, but also in the form of tax credits for American manufacturing to encourage more production to move within America's borders. This type of big industrial policy carries risks. For instance, higher prices for consumers, excess public spending, investments untethered from market realities, or the risk of trade disputes with America's economic allies. But Secretary Yellen sees public investment as key to expanding America's productive capacity. According to her and the Biden administration, investments in manufacturing are a way to advance America's future prosperity. I believe that we will also view this period as a time when we renewed America's economic strength. We're positioning America to build, innovate, and lead in the 21st century. The idea is that investments made now will pay off for years to come in places like Cleveland. Eleanor, what's your favorite thing in here? The headshot booth. <laughs> There's a headshot. If all goes to President Biden's plan, by the time Eleanor is grown up, America will look different and stronger than it does today. John, among economists, certainly, industrial policy has a pretty bad reputation. It went out of fashion after some fairly high-profile failures. But it's back now, not just in America, but particularly in America. Could you begin, perhaps, by outlining what the Biden administration thinks it's doing here? Well, I think there are a couple of rationales for this change of direction. One is to blunt the appeal of populism in left-behind areas, to boost domestic manufacturing in places where it was once vibrant. So you see a lot of as Charlotte noted in the last segment, a lot of investments in car factories. And that puts people to work not just in those factories, but also in the suppliers around them. And while there's a lot more car manufacturing in the South than there used to be, there's still a lot in the upper Midwest, and you see a lot of activity picking up there. The second reason, I think, is to compete more effectively with China. 
in the 90s, there was this thought that as China integrated fully into the world economy, it would inevitably become more liberal. In fact, what's happened is that China sort of changed how other countries, notably America, think about unfettered free trade. And you heard that in Janet Yellen's statement where she blames supply-side economics for increasing inequality and essentially says that we need the heavy hand of the state in more places than we did before. Now, as you pointed out, John, that sort of policy gets a bad name among some economists. We have a terrific cover package in this week's magazine that I think does a very good job of explaining why that amounts to a more dangerous zero-sum world. I don't know if anyone in the administration is going to read it, but they certainly should. Yeah, just to recap, there are sort of four reasons that they would give for state intervention. One is rising animosity with China. Two is COVID exposes vulnerability in supply chains. Three is the desire to accelerate action on climate change. And then four is a a desire to boost American industry, particularly in the middle of the country. And you have everyone from Larry Summers in a paper in 2018 to various politicians, including Biden himself, for years now talking about place-based strategies. So before it used to be that you would accept the idea that you should support people, not places. And the issue that seems to have arisen, as identified by Summers and others, is that people don't move as efficiently as you'd like them to. You have high housing costs in places that have more economic opportunity. It may be hard to transfer your public assistance that you receive in one place to another. There are all kinds of reasons why people don't actually move out of the place that is suffering economically. And there are other reasons people give, but this has helped to bolster support among some on the left for more place-based supports. Clearly, the rise of populism and Donald Trump's strength in some of these places is an additional reason, right? Um, There's a political imperative here that Democrats have identified. And the question is kind of how this all nets out. So, A, whether these policies actually do what they claim they'll achieve. And then the second question, which we raised in our cover story this week, is what does this prioritization of Americans and American manufacturing and American places, what does that mean for the rest of the world? For a very long time, America supported um, a multilateral economic system. And the idea was that open borders helped elevate people, not just in Ohio, but people far afield. And the administration would argue and, and has argued to me that there are real benefits that will come from this type of investment. Um, for instance, they argue that the cost of green manufacturing will decline and it's a very good thing to be less dependent on China for key technologies. But it's easy to imagine that outside America's borders, you have even allies who view these types of policies with much more reticence. Charlotte, listening to your list of what people in the Democratic Party think has gone wrong in the American economy and what they hope to achieve with this new industrial policy, I was struck by how much the diagnosis is really shared with Donald Trump, right, and the kind of MAGA movement. I mean, the aims are a bit different. Trump movement's not so interested in climate change. But the other things you mentioned, rising animosity with China, um, the idea that COVID showed that global supply chains are vulnerable, a desire to boost American industry, manufacturing and sort of blue collar jobs in the heartland. Those are very Trumpist desires also. I mean, I don't think the Trump movement had a very coherent plan for what to do about this beyond early in the Trump administration, um, hectoring companies who wanted to move jobs abroad, and then maybe later on just going hard after protectionism. So the Democrats have somewhat similar diagnosis, albeit a very different prescription for the country. 
Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And one thing that I think is really interesting is the phrase America first, which is a Trumpy phrase, but it could very well be applied to any of these policies, right, that we're seeing now rolled out by Democrats. Okay, we will be back in a moment to consider what all this means for American workers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, John, now we're headed back towards the Detroit area with lots of country music on the Ford F-150's very impressive hi-fi system. That's right. We headed back to Detroit to talk to Chuck Browning, who is the vice president of the United Auto Workers Union. And this union represents, as the name suggests, auto workers. Historically, it's one of the most active unions. It has a very progressive history. Listeners familiar with labor history will remember Walter Ruther, who was the mid-20th century president. He was very active in civil rights and in winning big contracts for its workers. Now, the UAW is not as powerful as it used to be, largely because there's been a huge increase in auto manufacturing in right-to-work states in the South. But they're still a force. And we talked to him to get a sense of how workers view the shift toward EVs. It's something we accept as inevitable change. Yeah, I would say the majority of our members are very excited about it. But uh, like any kind of change, you know, there's a lot of fear and concern. Um, Our industry with combustible engine manufacturing has been a very predictable industry for most of our members' entire career. If you build a mid-sized sedan, there's a, a pretty consistent volume of sales associated with that, and it's something people can depend on and rely on. You know, the unknown is, is what brings about the fear for the UAW members uh, in their workplaces. If you work in a powertrain plant and you're manufacturing transmissions or engines, you realize that's going to convert to batteries and motors. The amount of labor associated with making an engine or a transmission is 10 times the amount that it takes to make a motor uh, that would go on the axles or a battery. And so when people look at electrification, that's kind of the two components of an electric vehicle that everybody concentrates on. And they're like, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, it doesn't take very many people to do this process. But as you start peeling the layers off the onion, there are a lot of components um, that are going to be new to electric vehicles. And they're components that are labor-intensive, and they're components that can uh, replace existing work in our transmission facilities and our engine facilities in the plants. The workforce concern I'm hearing, though, is that it takes fewer people to build an electric vehicle itself or to build an engine. Yes. You hope those job losses would get recouped through the component business, right? You're probably going to experience a growth in the membership as you build both vehicles simultaneously, Mm -hmm. and then it'll balance 
back out to where it is now, is the hopes. So as we go through the transition, and there's all kinds of debate, that's, that's the one area where I can talk to 10 different people and get 10 different opinions on how fast the transition will be, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know. And if I did know things like that, I'd probably be better served uh, doing something different than a, a union rep with the UAW. Um, so from our perspective, it's extremely important that we hold on to the existing um, internal combustible engine work um, because we're going to be manufacturing, um, be it 90% of our vehicles or 10% of our vehicles. That work provides employment, provides jobs. And it's equally important, of course, that we bring all or as much of the new technology into uh, the bargaining unit as possible. What are you going to be asking for in the contracts specific to EVs that you wouldn't ask for in, a, in an ICE plan? When it becomes specific to electric vehicles in the bargaining, we'll be talking about securing uh, of the work mm-hmm. um, associated with it. We're also going to have to spend some time on the risk associated with the transition. So the risk is when the company says, hey, we're going to put a new product in there, mm-hmm. an electric vehicle. We're really excited about it, and we project that it's going to sell 350,000 units. Great. Wonderful. And you're basing that projection on what? And the reality is the one thing they're not basing it on is a history of manufacturing where they've seen the customers are going to do that. So we recognize that, right? You really have to talk about what if you're wrong? And so we're going to have discussions, what if you're wrong? How do we protect the income security of our members? So, John, I went into that meeting with Chuck Browning assuming that he'd just be really excited about the administration's policy and what's happening with manufacturing in the Midwest. What I hadn't realized, because I'm not a car nut, is it, of course, takes many fewer people to make an EV than it does to make an internal combustion engine. That's because mechanically they're much simpler. In particular, you don't need what we in Britain call a gearbox, what you guys would call a transmission, which is very fiddly, takes a lot of people to make. So there's some anxiety around that. Then there's also some anxiety around, as ever, in the car industry, the unionized bit of the car industry in the Midwest, around losing jobs either to non-unionized states further south or even to car plants uh, in Mexico or, or outside the U.S. Yeah, he was very focused on maintaining the current levels of employment. He said if it adds, that's great, but really what we want to do is maintain it. Just to give you some idea of employment in the car industry, in 1995, almost 300,000 Americans worked in car manufacturing. In 2020, barely over 110,000 did. Now, there's been some recouping of those numbers since then, but it still is a strikingly low number. And as John says... Electric vehicles just take fewer people to make. And I think Chuck is absolutely right to take a wait-and-see attitude about whether customers will buy it. If companies are excited about them, that's great. But it serves to highlight the fact that this transition to electric vehicles is still really uncertain, and there are a million ways to go wrong. It's not inevitable. I will say, I want to interject here just to say it's not so clean, this argument, and the federal government's intervention is a bit muddled here. So of all the green manufacturing policies, of which there are a lot 
in the Inflation Reduction Act, the single most restrictive, the ones that have the strictest rules to try to encourage domestic manufacturing are those for the EV supply chain. And Credit Suisse, which is a big bank, which doesn't have political interests and is analyzing the effect of the law on the market, their analysis is that the provisions in the IRA for EVs are mainly designed to boost domestic manufacturing rather than speed the switch to EVs because of the degree of restrictions about domestic content. And these include requirements that tax credits go only to cars that have final assembly in America. But even more important, there are all kinds of requirements around the manufacturing of batteries and even the sourcing of critical materials. Um, For the last category, critical minerals, America just can't produce all within its borders. And so there you see the administration allowing subsidies to go to batteries that use critical minerals from countries with free trade agreements with America. But even there, you see some complications, right? So there are all kinds of car companies that were trying to get lithium from Argentina. Argentina doesn't have an FTA with the United States. So there's a big question, an outstanding question here with how the administration is going to handle a hiccup like that, hiccup being a diminutive word for a really big problem. But the issue here is that the goals of decarbonization, which would be let's accelerate the take up of EVs, let's try to move this along as quickly as possible, is not perfectly aligned with the goal to increase domestic manufacturing. And in the provisions for EVs, you see the administration prioritizing the latter, domestic manufacturing, over the former. An FTA, for people who aren't following Charlotte's acronyms, is a free trade agreement. So the US government doesn't have a free trade agreement with Argentina, which would make it easier to get those minerals into the US. So just to add a little more detail there, these tax credits that are designed to stimulate demand for electric vehicles that was in the legislation passed by Congress, they are not applicable to most of the EVs on sale in America right now because they have too many components made outside the US. And when you talk to people in the administration about this, they say, well, actually, that's not a problem because, as Fasman was saying earlier, demand for EVs in America is so strong at the moment that it basically outstrips supply. So for most of them, there's a waiting list. What the administration thinks it's doing with these tax credits and subsidies is building future capacity and giving companies an incentive to retrain a very large number of workers who can then be put to use making things for this green revolution. I hope they're right. It's not just one bet that they're making on EVs. They're making a whole series of bets. And as anyone who gambles knows, parlay bets are really hard to hit and they have to get it right. I think that one thing that we should dwell on when we're talking about all these capital investments is thinking about a bit more about the human capital element. So this is important in two ways. One is the way in which federal policy is designed to try to bolster union jobs. You see this in requirements for the wages, prevailing wages that uh, companies must pay in order to qualify for certain tax credits, as well as in requirements for apprenticeships, which are usually run by unions. So there's that element of it, the type of jobs that are created by by these big capital investments. But then the other element is the problem, frankly, that The bills as passed by this administration, by Congress, leave aside a lot of the really big investments in human capital that people like Janet Yellen had hoped for. So these are investments that would both 
boost the labor force participation rate, which particularly among men has been in decline, and help deal with the skills problem, which is a perennial one for companies and governments alike, that the big investment, for instance, in community colleges that Jill Biden, Joe Biden's wife had championed, that didn't make it in. All the stuff around child care and elder care and other uh, social spending programs that the administration had hoped would be included in the Build Back Better bill, those didn't pass. So the question for this administration as it rolls out these big investments is whether all of these policies designed to boost capital investment, to boost manufacturing in the country, how those policies play out without a commensurate focus on human capital. Well, these are themes that we're going to be coming back to over and over again this year. We haven't yet got a good answer for this question about whether America can reindustrialize and decarbonize at the same time. But that's what we're hoping to investigate in this year-long series, which will kick off with Charlotte's piece in a couple of weeks' time. Guys, you know the drill. Before you go, it is quiz time, even on a road trip episode. Question one, who was the first president to ride to and from their inauguration in a car? Hmm. Coolidge? Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, probably Wilson. Yeah, you're probably right. I said Coolidge, but I but it's probably Wilson. You're hitching a ride with Fasman. Yeah. That's in, inadvisable. It was Warren G. Harding in March 1921. William McKinley is thought to be the first president to ride in a car. Teddy Roosevelt, the first to do so as part of his official duties, but it was Harding. Mm. I think that the quiz for this week should be something like, if John Fasman is really hungry and you're in a car that's going 30 miles an hour, but the charging station is 60 miles away, how much time can you spend idling while you get a piece of gourmet beef jerky until you run out of a battery? The car and I ran out of batteries at the same time on this trip. There, there was a moment. It was all going pretty well. We were having a great time, but you, you did. Your battery level was low at the same time as the, the Fords, but we got past it. Question two. What are sweepers, roadrunner, overwatch, spares, stagecoach, and hazardous materials mitigation unit? They're all different steps in the assembly of a Ford F-150 at the plant at River Rouge. It's a good answer. Fasman, what are you going for? Nicknames for people who played for the Cincinnati Reds in the 1970s. If that's right, I'm going to completely... <laughs> from my computer against the wall. (laughs) If that's right, we give up and go home. Thankfully, it's not right. They are all vehicles that are part of the presidential motorcade. Ah, Ah. that's great. I'd like to point out that once again, my quizmate has also gotten zero points. (laughs) Um, Your strategy, whatever it is, Charlotte, is proving effective. (laughs) Sweepers tend to be police vehicles at the front, clearing the route. Roadrunner is a communications vehicle. Overwatch is a helicopter, so maybe that's cheating a bit. Spares are decoy cars, and Stagecoach is the car the president rides in. The Hazmat Mitigation Unit is a truck that can respond to nuclear, biological, or chemical weapons attacks, which is also part of the cavalcade. I prefer thinking that Tony Perez was sometimes known as the Hazmat Mitigation Unit. We should also say thank you to the nice people at Ford for lending us the shiny F-150, which we returned without a scratch. I have to say, for the male with a physique that resembles an asparagus and is keen to assert his masculinity whilst also signalling uh, concern for the environment, it's, it's a pretty good ride. So thank you to them. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicolas Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. 
You can now explore our whole archive, all the pods we've done over the past few years, at economist.com slash checkspod. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.